0: Hiya there, fam, and welcome to the OCD Family Podcast. It's Black Friday, which is a whirlwind marketing campaign that follows the Thanksgiving holiday here in the States, and it really ushers in the holiday season for a bunch of folks. And as this week really centers around a theme of gratitude and thankfulness, I couldn't be more delighted. Because I am thankful for you, fam. And I'm also so grateful for our esteemed guest, Dr. Rebecca Schneider, taking time to come chat with us today about misophonia. So, settle in, family, because there's lots to discuss and lots to learn with part four of our OCRD series for our beloved OCD related disorder warriors. I'm Nicole Morris, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist and Mental Health Correspondent and let me be the first to say, welcome to the family, the OCD family that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children as there may be adult words and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. So I am excited to dig into today's topic and talk about the right place, right time, because we're talking about misophonia on this episode. And for a fair amount of folks, a big misophonia trigger can include the sound of someone chewing their food. So Thanksgiving was yesterday. It's often thought of as a day of feasting and stretchy pants gathered with family and friends. And so for some folks, this may just be a really, really hard week. But what is misophonia? A 2019 write-up in Harvard Health described misophonia as when, quote, people are affected emotionally by common sounds, usually those made by others and usually ones that other people don't pay attention to. Examples include breathing, yawning, or chewing, and they create a fight or flight response that triggers anger and a desire to escape, end quote. And I feel like I do recall growing awareness Articles, memes being shared a few years back where folks started having this aha moment, understanding that, hey, there is this name for this phenomena where folks really erupt on a physiological and neurological level from these different sounds. Though sometimes, as we'll discuss today, visual cues as well. So as much as there is a whole vibe here for folks that are like, ah, there's a name for this, a description for what I have been feeling. It's also not an official diagnosis, but great works from our research buddies like Dr. Eric Storch from season one and a dedicated group of others. Today's guest expert, Dr. Rebecca Schneider, have helped us in having better understanding of what misophonia is and isn't, and what we have learned is that the breadth of research, which we're talking grum-sized breaths <laughs> right now, but hey, for what research we have we are finding that misophonia seems to best fit within the realm of OCD-related disorders, or OCRDs, which makes it a perfect topic for this series. And much like all of our other OCRDs, misophonia functions very differently than OCD overall. So while we can file it in the close-but-no-cigar category, it's important to note that there is more to discuss here. So family, I'm going to be linking all the citations and resources I have over at OCDFamilyPodcast.com. For any newer family joining us, just look on the blog for the corresponding episode and it will give you the hookup so you can find out more information about Rebecca or any of the topics we discuss. That Harvard Health Research. And also, hey, it's Black Friday, so I just wanted to make a quick note that over at OCDFamilyPodcast.com, You can also check out the shop for a deal on some OCD family merch. Just enter the discount code OFP15, OFP15, and that will give you 15% off on any order between now and the end of November. A friendly reminder that all proceeds from the shop go to help cover operational costs of OCD family podcasts and help raise awareness. People see OCD Family Podcasts, they strike up a conversation about is not everyone just a little bit OCD? And it's an opportunity to help spread awareness and accurate information about OCD and OCRDs like Misophonia. So check out the store if you're interested. Shipping is worldwide, and I'd love to partner with folks to learn more about the fam here. But last little housekeeping note, because are we even a family, y'all, if we're not doing some housekeeping? I just want to mention that as we have Black Friday and Small Business Saturday, Cyber Monday, and Giving Tuesday, I just want to give a small plug here for anyone who is finding this content helpful. The greatest gift that you could give me and the fam here is becoming a regular subscriber and sharing your five-star review wherever you are enjoying your podcasts or on YouTube. That feedback really does help with all the techie algorithm things, and it enables us to continue to spread hope, awareness, and resources to the OCD family community. And better yet, it's free. So please consider taking one, two minutes tops to rate, hit, subscribe, write something, don't write something, whatever you fancy, fit, whatever you have time for. But it's a really quick thing that really can help when it comes to our community being populated in the algorithm. So I'll probably put something out on Giving Tuesday, too. But if you'd be willing on Giving Tuesday or even before then, if you're like, I'm sitting down now and I can do it now, I'm getting ready to shop for Cyber Monday, I'll do it now. Yes, please. I would so, so appreciate your support in this very small but very important way. All right. So without further ado, let's welcome Rebecca Fam because she's really a trailblazer. And we owe a lot of our foundational knowledge and growth around understanding misophonia and the research to the good doc here. So let's get to it. Well, welcome back to the OCD Family Podcast. And today I have Dr. Rebecca Schneider with me. And I am so, so grateful because we are going to be having a very important chat. As there are so many people in our community and more broadly, struggling with this idea, this concept, this thing called misophonia. And as we've talked a little bit in the top of the show, misophonia is emerging within the research, which Rebecca here, you have been very, very involved. If you Google research on misophonia, you're going to hear about Rebecca. But it is, it is such a confusing, distressing frustrating content area because so many families are like, I don't know what to do to help my loved one. And we're really struggling. And so, Rebecca, thank you so much for being a guest here today with the fam. And I really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Thanks for having me on here. And I also I'm just really excited that this is a topic that we're going to be talking about because it's so important. And there's just been so few conversations about it so far.
0: Yes, I'm going to make a prediction that this episode is going to be one that's referenced and popular for some time because, absolutely, there's not a lot of conversation going on about it. And the conversation that is happening, I think, leads families sometimes to this feeling of a dead end of what's happening. But certainly, there's so many folks looking for answers and feeling like they're hitting those dead ends. So, First of all, just more broadly for people that are newer to this term, can you describe more broadly what is misophonia and help us understand what we are learning about this condition?
1: Misophonia is basically this condition where you have really extreme sensitivity to very specific sounds. And usually these are human-generated sounds of sounds like people chewing or slurping, coughing, pen tapping, some of those sounds that for many of us is kind of annoying. Mm-hmm. But then symphonia, that sound triggers this just really immediate feeling of anger, rage, disgust, anxiety, just mm-hmm. kind of that strong fight or flight reaction when you hear it. Mm-hmm.
0: And so when when a person has this reaction, How quickly would you anticipate, is it kind of just this immediate like boom reaction or is it something that kind of like stirs with them and they emerge? Because sometimes I will get that question from family and I think to myself it's more of that immediate reaction, almost like a physiological reaction, right? But can you explain, does this have kind of a range of onset on how it can trigger somebody or is it pretty immediate?
1: It's really pretty immediate. It's almost as soon as you hear that sound, there's just this flood of physiological reactions in your body. There's that anger feeling, and then the thoughts kind of can come along with it. But I've had patients who have described that they hear, you know, their dad coughing and immediately just like swept their hands down and they can't really control it. They don't even realize it's happening until after it's happened, but it's just this strong immediate reaction that they have.
0: Yeah. So really, the cause and effect is like they hear the sound and the triggered reaction is happening before they can even really process and think about it. Okay. And so in terms of understanding this better, is it only when it comes to sounds or does this also, can it trigger something like images? You said dots can come after, but is it really like no... It's the sound versus other kind of things that would trigger that immediate response, like, say, somebody scratching their arm.
1: So it's a lot of it, and mostly it sounds, but there are a significant portion of people who also report this experience with certain visual stimuli or images. So seeing somebody scratching their arm or kind of fiddling with their hair or having their elbow up on the window, there's kind of this loose term mesokinesia to describe reaction you get to the images, but it's very similar.
0: Okay. So in terms of that, that's really helpful because I think, again, most people are going to associate it with sound. I know I have. But also when we're talking about maybe the visual image, having the arm scratch, again, would trigger that immediate fight, flight, or freeze flooding response, that immediate irritability or rage or any of the reactions that you described before. If, and we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, but if someone sees the scratch and that feels more of an emotional contamination or is associated with some other experience in terms of like with OCD, for example, where we might appraise some intrusive outcome as a response of this scratch we're playing meaning we're having time to not just react and be flooded but have further meaning implied is this how you would distinguish it from ocd because this is the ocd family community they're going to be more more familiar with kind of how ocd works and a lot of times i think people are like well if it's a visual thing
1: then isn't it ocd yeah that's a great question i think also especially that because Misophony has been proposed to fall into this obsessive-compulsive-related disorders category. Mm -hmm. And as far as we know, really it's seeming that it is separate from OCD. So misophony is not OCD. Mm -hmm. And one of the big ways to distinguish between the two is the type of emotional reaction that you get. So with OCD, the primary emotion is anxiety. You have that obsessive-intrusive thought or a trigger that shows up. And then you have this experience of anxiety and fear and then this urge to do something to get rid of that. Mm-hmm. esophonia well, really, it's this anger with a little disgust kind of component. Maybe there's a little bit of anxiety there, but the primary emotion isn't anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the big distinguishers between the two. I think the other is what you were talking to where... With me so funny, that it's really that immediate physiological response that shows up first. So there's not a lot of this. I'm pausing, I'm thinking, I'm interpreting what this means. Your body kind of reacts. And then there is interpretation as part of it. And that I think is actually a big part of what makes certain sounds feel harder than others. The coughing is bad, but the pen tapping is not. But that happens after the fact.
0: Yeah. Yeah, really good point. And so the aftermath of having the reaction is is really what it is in misophonia versus usually that is the driver when we look at within OCD into the participation in the compulsion because it's like, oh my gosh, this thing happens and I gotta I gotta do something about it because you're sitting with that sense of dread or Whatever kind of intrusive meaning that has for you. And so that's a really good distinguishing factor. And so sounds and visual cues can be exclusively OCD, they can be exclusively misophonia. I know that the research is still like an active work in progress. Do we have an idea of kind of the comorbidity of how often both are showing up together?
1: That's a great question. It's something that we are. Definitely still studying. There's a couple of big areas that that we're trying to research right now. One is just honestly still trying to figure out what misophony it is, how often it shows up, what the comorbidities are, what the prevalence is. We know that it does sometimes co-occur with OCD or obsessive compulsive personality disorder or some of these other disorders, but a lot of times it's also its own thing. So it's on its own with new comorbidities. And That's part of what contributes to why we think this is its own thing and not just a subset of another disorder. It doesn't hang directly with a specific condition.
0: Yeah. So because the response likens or it correlates enough with kind of the urge, the behavioral profile, if you will, of OCD, it gets lumped in there. But it really does seem like it's its own neurological thing. Where it's a neurological reaction, it is your brain braining, which is the same within OCD, but behavior and behavioral learning can make a difference on the impact of OCD. What are we learning in terms of for misophonia because that reaction is so immediate and so quick? What can we do about that, and what are we learning about the nature the the? the whole vibe
1: when it comes to misophonia. I mean, I think, you know, with misophonia, that learning history, we think does matter too, just like with NCD. So there is some sort of learning history or some sort of kind of reason why these specific sounds are connected. And also there is some sort of cognitive or thinking component to it. And I think one of the best examples I have of this is, and this is across many different patients that I've worked with. with, where they'll tell me about a time when they were sitting there and all of a sudden their mom or their dad started eating in the background and they heard these awful slurping sounds. And so they were filled with that immediate feeling of anger and you know, whipped around to yell at their parent. And then it was their cat drinking out of the water pool.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And immediately that feeling of anger went away. Hmm. Now, it's not necessarily just this slurping sound across the board bothers me. There's something about that specific sound tied to that specific person in a specific kind of environment that creates that reaction. Mm, Okay.
0: Well, that is helpful. That is helpful. So in terms of trying to piece this out, because misophonia is different than OCD and because the subtleties in what's going on and, and the learning nature of both conditions here. How do parents, how do kids or even adults struggling with this is not only something that happens for kids? The adults out there are like, hey, don't forget about me. But how do people distinguish even a direction of where to go next? Because that's hard, even for some clinicians. I mean, I'm asking some of these questions, and I'm, I'm still learning how to piece out and filter out. How do folks proceed forward in getting help when this is what's going on in their family, in their, in their own brain?
1: That's a great question. And one of the good news is that it does seem like some of these behavioral interventions that we have do seem to be helpful in lessening some of that emotion intensity and reactions. Mm-hmm. And so I think when you're trying to figure out where do I go for a treatment when nobody even knows what misophonia is, a great place to start is looking for a provider who has experience with behavioral treatments. So cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, all of these sort of behavioral interventions Because a lot of those skills are skills that do seem to be useful and we're just still kind of trying to figure out which skills packaged in what way might be the most helpful. But somebody with that background is going to be really well equipped to learn from the very small existing literature and take what they know about behavioral and learning principles and put that together to work alongside you to try out and see what is helpful and what isn't.
0: So it sounds like it's a lot of still trial and error in terms of using some of those cognitive behavioral skills, CBT. And that brings up a point, too, because I know I, I've talked with Eric Storch on this before. He was on the podcast last year and he was in your panel, has done research on misophonia as well. At one point, they were like, OK, maybe ERP is going to work for this. That's exposure and response prevention for newer fam that is joining us. Most of us are like, oh, yeah, we know it. <laughs> We know ERP. But what they discovered in the research was they wasn't actually making a significant impact for the outcomes here for folks struggling with this condition. And so can you talk a little bit about where research is at and what has been illuminated? What's been kind of like, "Mm, no, that didn't work. (laughs) You know, where are things at with that?
1: Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I think that's, you know, when When the psychology field first sort of became interested and learned about misophonia, really Mm -hmm. it was within that OCD community that most got taken up. And Mm -hmm. so with OCD, we know we do a lot of exposure, response prevention, exposure work. And so it makes a lot of sense that that's where we started. Let's see of exposure, Mm -hmm. just like with OCD, can help for misophonia. Mm -hmm. What we found is that, Exposure in that very classic habituation way of approaching it didn't seem to work in the way we would expect, or in the way it does with OCD. Mm-hmm. That form of exposure, the I'm gonna keep kind of being in this situation until my, you know, emotion distress goes down, doesn't seem to happen. Mm-hmm. And that if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because we're not dealing with anxiety here. Mm-hmm. We're dealing with anger, disgust. We know disgust doesn't habituate in that same way as anxiety. That's why kind of that disgust focused OCD is a little bit harder to treat. It requires kind of just a little bit of a different lens. Mm-hmm. And the same is the case for misophonia. We do know, though, that avoidance of situations makes things worse. So when you avoid your triggers, when you walk around with headphones in for, You know, every time you approach this difficult sound, what's going to happen over time is that sound is going to start to bother you more. Your reaction is going to be bigger. It's going to start to expand to other sounds.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Avoidance makes it worse. And then the flip side of it, approach does seem to be really helpful. Mm -hmm. So approaching these uncomfortable, difficult situations seems to be very important But not necessarily from that classic habituation, I'm going to stay in this situation until I stop being so upset approach.
0: Now, that's a very interesting point because I'm imagining for some of our family here that is like, what's the difference, though, between exposure? I'm exposing something and approaching because it's it's a little confusing. Some people will could operationalize both, right? You know, I'm supposed to move towards it, but not do exposure. And I know that you highlighted clinically, we're not talking about that habituation model. So approaching is not not to try and habituate the brain, but it it has a different, it serves a different function, if I'm understanding you correctly. But I think for folks more broadly, they're probably going to be like, that's exposure. You're saying don't avoid it and go toward it.
1: (laughs) Is that not exposure? And so can you help clarify that a little more? Yeah. And functionally, when I talk about approaching a situation, really what that means is I want to practice being in a situation that really matters to me. So there's, I think, bringing in that values piece can be incredibly helpful, motivating. There's a reason why I sit here with my family at dinner. And then doing so in a way that allows me to try to be present while dropping that struggle with all the difficult stuff that's showing up in that moment. And doing so, not in hey, mm-hmm. "I'm just going to kind of grit my teeth and get through this meal," and it feels like torture to me, and I'm just going to shut down but try to get through it. That kind oh, of exposure sure. does it for, and, and honestly, it honestly doesn't work great really well for OCD either. That's more that way knuckling approach to things. We know that that doesn't, in the long run, help. Right. right. We really want to encourage right. sort of this acceptance, curiosity, you know. Approach mindset of I'm going to be here. I'm going to notice this experience. I'm going to try to drop that struggle and drop the fight in this moment and just be present.
0: So, what I'm kind of hearing, and if I I don't always hear things correctly, (laughs) so (laughs) tell me, you could tell me if I'm off, but it's kind of a mind over matter situation. Like, you kind of have to go in with that mindset like you said of I'm doing my value driven activity. My focus isn't on not being irritated by the sound, but I know it's going to be there. I know what I can do and and what's going to be challenging for me and I'm going to move towards living my life with the people I love. Is that would that be more in line with what you're saying?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good summary. And I think adding to that, being able to try to take a step back and if you can find a way to sort of notice these sounds as just noises that are happening. So instead of, you know, your brain is automatically going to label this as dangerous, bad, need to react, respond. But if you can find a way to pause and step back and realize this is a sound like any other sound. And then if you can even get into that mindset, that sort of perspective taking element too of, and this person isn't doing it to me or trying to create this negative reaction, which a lot of times there's these thoughts that go along with it. Like this is person, why are they doing it? They should be able to stop. They should be snacked. A lot of that kind of thinking that goes along with it. But if you can then cultivate some compassion for the other person, have some perspective take. They're just Feeling sick right now and they can't help their popping, or they're just at the movies trying to enjoy their popcorn and really having a good time. Mm-hmm. That combined with hearing the sound as just a sound and then putting up to whatever thoughts and feelings are showing seems like it can be really helpful.
0: Yeah. So, something that I'm getting out of this and in, in just kind of thinking as you're saying that is recognizing when we're having tunnel vision and really zooming in into the sound and really trying to zoom out and see the whole picture. That doesn't change your picture. And it's not meant to change your picture in the sense of all the all the moving parts. But it changes your mindset on where you're focusing. And so what I'm hearing you say is if we can focus more broadly, not only on your experience, which is part of it, but also the greater context. Yep, that person has a cold. That does suck. And it sucks that that sound is so hard for me, but they do have a cold. And that, thinking about it that way, is a little different than getting caught up in that visceral reaction. Now, because the the visceral reaction is so immediate, though, it's like, And this is probably why when we think about treatment and practicing, approaching things, it's going to take some practice because your immediate reaction is going to be your go-to, right? But in in the sense of going in and going, okay, I know I get rageful, like rage. If we imagine that's high up there on the scale of of reactions. And so going in and be like, I'm going to approach and zoom out. I'm telling myself that, but I know, like I just feel overcome by the rage. It is one thing to think before, but it's like, how do we build that buffer space of I'm gonna remind myself of my of my goal to approach and and take in more than just my experience in this, the greater context, when it is such a fast reaction. Cause it's one thing to know that, and it's another thing to be
1: able to do that because we're so ignited, right? Yes. Yeah. No, this is so much easier said than done. And it's something that takes a lot of practice and is not an immediate kind of change. I think some of the things that can be helpful as it seems like controllability influences people's reaction. So just how much control it feels like they have over the situation with more control, making it a little bit easier to handle that situation. And so it can help to, especially as you're working with family members and trying to figure out how can we make family dinners a place that we go to, figuring out ways to give that person just a little bit more control over the situation to help them stay in it in a different way. Yeah. i Practicing some of those skills around shifting your attention, mindfulness acceptance lens outside of the really in situations right. and then building it up can bring it into these really hard situations.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I, I really like what you're saying about that. And it also bubbles up more questions for me because I'm thinking, okay, so if we can set the scene to be more conducive to this ability to be able to zoom out and approach the situation. Sometimes we also have avoidance sneaking in there going, okay, so I actually can avoid the the situation a little bit (laughs) by adding in some of the control piece. I feel like where do we get into, I don't know, I guess some of the wrestling I'll be like, is this accommodating? Is this helping support and scaffold that controllability? so that we can approach for folks that maybe are dealing with possibly both OCD and this, they're going to be like, is that, is that giving into the compulsion, but not like it's a fine line, right?
1: Yeah. And I think when we think about that support versus accommodation and how to balance all of that, really thinking about what, the function of evidence mm-hmm. is a really nice way to guide you. So, it's the accommodation over it's not going to change in how you're handling or approaching, for example, meal times, is in order to help the family member better approach mm-hmm. that situation, whatever way they're capable of in that moment, mm-hmm. then that's probably a really helpful, useful thing. If it's more done from a Place of I'm trying to help them avoid this experience, then that kind of pulls you all away. So I think thinking about the function of it and then thinking too about what just the value and the goal is in the situation. How do you want them to approach? what's really important to make sure they can be there for? Mm-hmm. And I think also when you're thinking about it, knowing yeah. that this is just really hard too. I think it can be really easy to kind of get into this mindset and they just need to fuck it up and be here you know just sit down it's not that big of a deal it's not that loud but it's really really hard so always having that compassion and understanding in the back of your mind
0: yeah
1: be allowing them if they're getting really caught up in it to leave the room with the caveat that they come back in a few minutes so that they can then reapproach in this open engaged way instead of this I'm just suffering through it, kind of like.
0: Right. Like you said before, that white knuckling sense. And I really like the way you, you phrase that because not only looking at the function, but what are we gaining access to? Are we gaining access to eating dinner as a family and doing what we needed? Or are we gaining access to lessening distress for Timmy? Because if it's all about so he doesn't have a meltdown, and not about so he can have his life with his family. Then, because both can kind of, I think sometimes we were like, no, but that is, it's what we have to do to access it. And it's like, well, is that what we have to do to access it? What are we accessing? Are we, because this happens in OCD too, right? You know, where it's like, are we actually accessing the freedom to be able to have some agency over the OCD or are we just like strong arming? We're gonna do this, damn it, right? And so it it can be that challenge, but I think it's important to be like, okay, so what are we accessing? Because sometimes people can get to, oh, this is what we do to access our values. Yeah, but are we doing it in a value driven way, right? Because I think that piece, even when we're thinking within OCD treatment, gets missed. It can get missed by family members. It can get missed by practitioners. I'll say when I started doing ERP, I, I would sometimes miss because I'm thinking we're we're coming up with exposures around this goal. And it's like, but that's not the, the value driven goal for us to be able to, you know, go to a poultry shop and watch them make sausages and not flip out about the meat. The point is, whether you eat the meat or not, can we be at the dinner table and have dinner with the family and not be like, because meat has touched anything, I can't eat with y'all. Right. So it's like being able to not only get the functionality of that, but like what is what's our end goal? If the end goal is really limiting and decreasing distress, which honestly, of course, we want for our loved ones, for ourselves, too. But at the same time, if our goal is to overvalue the fact that this is what we want to do, we want to be able to have family things, not that we expect this is going to change how they feel about being at family dinner or hearing the the chewing sound or whatever it is and so would you say would that does that sound right or if i'm getting off course help direct me back on course because i want to make it as clear for the fam as i can
1: yeah no that sounds exactly right so what is your actual goal with this what do you want to increase so maybe listening to music while you eat dinner for example, if that's the thing that's gonna allow a child to participate in dinners which then they get to actually hear more of those chewing noises than if they're avoiding and maybe that is something that is worth doing and then you can play around and practice different things within that context but having at least initially that music during dinner time if that's what it takes to have that family dinner could be really meaningful and then from there also just Focusing on the values within the meal too, right? So then you get to practice, well, here's the reason why I'm here and I want to pay attention to all of this other stuff. I don't want to sit here and only listen out for who's going to make what sound next and what it's going to feel like. I want to practice being at dinner time and noticing and experiencing all of this other valued uh, experiences.
0: Yeah, so, you know, even sitting down and maybe playing a family game or something like that you know we're all going to share our highs and lows for the day or whatever it's like if we want to be able communication you know the general is nice during a family dinner but if we have some buy-in like I want to be able to participate in I want to say what it was awesome about today and I want to say what was poop maybe this was the poop moment (laughs) because I'm like hearing the chewing but at the same time it's awesome that I get to participate Having something like that. In terms of the music, I'm just thinking, like, from a sensory perspective, and I do a lot of work with autistic community, with, and I have autistic kids. I know music is super regulating for a lot of my kids and some of my clients. Sometimes going into a situation where we can anticipate it's going to be hard, sometimes we preload with the kind of sensory input that's going to help us be at our best. Would that, in the research, is there any kind of examination of looking like if we preload and go in as regulated as we can be in a situation, is that going to be a better outcome than going into that family dinner if we get irritated or not because we kind of win in, kind of optimized for whatever comes? Or does it really not have an effect one way or the other because of how, how things are happening neurologically?
1: It, it actually does seem that having some of those sort of baseline regulated state can make a pretty big impact on how bothered you are by some of these misophonia sounds. So when you are already in a heightened state of emotion, you're already you're irritated or stressed, you're more likely to be triggered by some of these sounds and to sound more quickly and easily to them. Whereas when you are in a place where you're in a good mood, are you just, worked out so you're feeling all tired and you're getting enough sleep and you're eating enough and all in a sort of baseline vulnerability factor areas when that's all working well it seems that people generally they may still react but just feel a little bit less reactive or less things bother them or that it's easier for them to bring themselves back down when they have that trigger
0: okay So doing doing some of the prep work in priming yourself if you know yourself best, this for some music that's gonna dysregulate them. So don't do that. It was gonna dysregulate, you know, but we all have our different things. And I guess, you know, in a way, as you were saying it, I was like, Well, I guess it is kind of common sense too though, right? Like whether you have misophonia or not, things are gonna bother you in life. And if we kind of invest in ourselves those regulatory states, we're going to be able to weather it in a way that we wouldn't if we're exhausted, tired and going from thing to thing. Right. So that's that's a really good point. I have a memory of I have uh, one of my best friends has MS and we did this this walk that was like 50 miles long. It was a very long walk which was fundraising for MS. And I remember at one point, and I've done, I've run races and all that, and it was, I was much younger, so much, so much younger when I did this. But I remember I sprained my hamstring. And that was like 24 miles into the walk. So, and it was like 20, 20 10. We did like three-day walk, 20 miles the first day, 20 miles the second day. So fairly, fairly early into the second day. And because I just kept going and powering through it, it was really hard. So we were walking together. But at a certain point, I was like, you know what, you guys, I want you to walk ahead because this this is giving me trouble. And I was feeling the pressure, whether they were meaning to or not, to, like, go faster. And I didn't want to injure myself more. But probably my pride, I also felt like I needed to keep up, right? And so they would be like, OK. But they would get to a certain point and wait for me, right? And then I would catch up. And then we're like, great, you're here. Let's go. And so really what they're having is these series of rests along the way. And I'm having this injury and I'm getting to this point where I'm like, no rest, no rest, no rest. And as much as it was so thoughtful from their perspective, I might have done the same thing in their perspective to wait and say, we've got this, we'll do it together. It was more like, actually, I don't. Break at all, and y'all are like, we've been breaking here for five minutes, so we're good. Let's go, oh, let's go, right? And so I imagine this might be a weird analogy, but I imagine kind of going into something where you're already exhausted, you're already triggered by these things, you're not feeling a lot of encouragement or hope because, and, and if anything, just more irritable because you're like, why is this happening? I can't stop it. People are eating every day. It's always gonna bug me, right? It's a little bit like having that that struggle and not getting the break we need to be able to figure out how do we need to recharge and give ourselves what that quote unquote break is going into it and that's not accommodating it that's just that's just like functioning through life and trying we all have to recharge at some point right and so i don't know it might be a weird analogy to kind of bring in but that that feeling of like ah you're probably if you're tuning into this and you or your loved one is dealing with a misophonia, you're probably already like we're at that exhausted point where we can't catch a break. And we get up to somewhere and we have all this hope that it's going to be something. And instead, it's like, no, but we're getting closer to goal. Come on. Come, come on. And it's like, not right. You know, at a certain point, you're like, I can't. I need something. I need some hope. So I, I don't know. It's a weird analogy, but I'm I'm just thinking like for folks that are stringing along like me on on that walk going oh my gosh I barely just got here you're already moving on this isn't even going to be helping this isn't even the goal like what would what message would you give for those folks that are just trying to hang in there and feeling that sense of exhaustion and hopelessness and uh, not that I was hopeless in that but the frustration in that
1: yeah yeah and I think that speaks to just this is probably a very, this is a long journey for many families, a long journey without a whole lot of answers. There's a lot of, I don't know, there's a lot of what even is best kind of questions. And so you're right, it can feel like we're just going along and we're just trying to survive every day and things are feeling worse and worse and there's just no, no end in sight and that can feel really exhausting. I would say that, Yes, there's not a whole lot known right now, but we're finally having these really important conversations about this. We're finally starting to talk about it. There's finally starting to be some research on this. And so I think that there will be answers. Yes, it's, it's not going to be a forever. Like We're going to figure this out. We're already learning more and more about this. I think it's really great that people even, you know, this is real this is a real experience and we hear you and this is hard mm-hmm. but I think that just knowing that people understand can go a really long way mm-hmm. and then just trying to approach this as much as possible from a especially within your family like let's join together let's figure out how we can build out our own family's unique strengths and Face this together. One of the things that probably happened a lot with Misophonia is you get caught up in this just never-ending cycle of irritability and lashing out and getting upset. And then the parent feels attacked because they're just trying to live and then their kid is yelling at them and it feels personal. And so then they yell back. And instead of kind of getting caught up in that cycle, which of course we get caught up in that, right. Being out pause and remember, like, first of all, this isn't. My child's fault. They're not doing this on purpose. Mm -hmm. They are a really real experience. It's not a personal thing. There's nothing about me specifically that they're yelling at. It's just this specific noise for whatever reason Mm -hmm. to cause a lot of distress. And then finding ways to join with them, finding Mm -hmm. ways to still have family time and experiences that are positive outside of me, so it's reconnecting to other valued activities together so that life isn't just revolving around this. And then, you know, staying calm as much as possible in those moments and talking with your child. What can I do to help? What makes it worse? How can we together try this out? And I think if you can kind of step back from that, we're just trying to survive mode and into let's unite together. We're stronger as a team and as a family that can make things feel a little bit more manageable while we're still trying to figure everything out.
0: Yeah, I think that's a a really good point, giving yourself permission and being intentional about carving that space to prioritize some non-misophonia moments, right? Like, so if we know the trigger is around chewing food, and it's been kind of the survival cycle, then maybe even planning, like, we're Just go to the park. We're not doing a picnic at the park. We're not doing this. We're just going to go for a walk. We're going to go watch some YouTube videos together or something, you know, whatever your person is into or you're into. And just give ourselves, if we need to start small, a 20 minute goal where we don't have to worry about what's happening or not happening with misophonia. We literally can just like, chill. We can binge watch, you know, something silly and mindless and and laugh at it and just have that moment where we can go, oh, we're having fun together. We we do like to have fun together. I
1: forgot how
0: we, uh, we used to enjoy more things together. That can trigger some of the sadness, I think, for people in the grief of going like, oh, what we once had. But also it's putting a foot back into recreating what you have still. You have it still. It's there to be able to participate and we've just got to get back in the mode of doing it. And so, you know, it almost reminds me of like when I was getting married, for example. We, my husband and I planned our wedding, we paid for our wedding, and everything leading up to the wedding then becomes a vendor appointment. Did you do this? We have all this to do on our to-do list. Plus we're working in life and preparing for all this stuff, right? And moving and it's like, sometimes we even had to give ourselves a break. Like we're going to go have dinner and we're not going to talk about the wedding, right? We're going to give ourselves a date from this because it starts to become such, such a a big to-do that you can get kind of flooded and overwhelmed within that process. And so it sounds like even similarly here, going, okay, how are we going to, and that's really approaching life, but we don't have to work on your misophonia triggers here in this moment. Let's just go do something that is for us. Let's just, let's walk the dogs. Let's drive around and let's, let's go swimming because it's hot out, whatever it is, right? And have that time to reconnect and remember, like, there is more to life than what has been hard. There is more to life than what has become our pattern of surviving. We can carve out those intentional spaces to say, like, no, we were a family and this is what it means to be a family. It doesn't mean having misophonia. Yes, it's important to validate that. It's important to validate that it's real and it has a name and it's being worked on. But, But yeah, I think that's a really important point.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I As you were talking, I was thinking about how I have a son who's almost two. Mm-hmm. He was first born. He had a lot of feeding-related difficulties. And so very quickly, our whole life started revolving around feeding and to deal with it. And it was very easy to get caught up in that and forget to take a step back and also appreciate all of the wonderful experiences of having a new baby and a child. And So I think making sure you pause and also get to live life, even with all of these really stressful, hard things that are going on, too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know what? That's a really good point. I had had kids with feeding, nursing issues and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And you become so consumed and they're like, don't stress and make sure you sleep and make sure you know this, but do this and do that. And you're like, between the supplements, between the Zumba massages and all the things we're doing,
1: you're like, yeah, I
0: get it. And now we can laugh at it, folks. Look at that. Look at that. <laughs> laugh and cry a little bit. Right. Yeah, no, but it's hard, right? You know, it's, it is it is hard. And so that's a really great example. It's not that that doesn't matter, but it's also like we're missing out. And not in a way to shame ourselves or anything like that, but to illuminate if we can get out of that tunnel vision of this thing that, yes, is is so important and hard and causing some concerns and difficulties. We can zoom out and also go. But look now, that now he's turning his head, and oh, he can sit up, and all the different things that happen so quickly in the blink of an eye. Like then we get to at least live lives, live to our values, and have that time. And so I think that's a really great example in terms of the research, and then what we do know. Because I know you you highlighted. We don't know a lot, but we are learning things. And I would say even the illumination of like typical exposure is not going to work. Habituation is not going to work. But approaching, pre-loading yourself and and also utilizing those cognitive behavioral strategies before and after, really, and in, in being able to work with that mindset. What has been if if maybe I covered it, but what has been illuminated even more by the research that has been able to be done?
1: Yeah. And I think this is where honestly the research is there's so little research. So I want to preface all of this by just having yet another caveat <laughs> that there's not a lot out there yet. And I actually as so I was talking with a colleague the other week and we just out of curiosity put me Sophonia into PubMed, in which is the Research search engine Mm -hmm. basically. As of last week, there was 187 results for misophonia. And to put that into context, when you search obsessive compulsive disorder, we got almost 24,000 results. Mm -hmm. And then of anxiety broadly, it was over 320,000 results. And so if you compared 320,000 studies about anxiety versus 187 for misophonia. I think that really just based to, to how little we know at this point. Right, right. Well,
0: and that made me think, too. I was like, what is that? now Google is obviously not the same as PubMed, right? But, but where does the general population go to learn this information? They go to Google. How many search results does Google have? Because that would tell us how much, like, just the average person is researching it. I feel like I usually see that number at the top. I just typed in misophonia. Where are you? I don't know. But I bet, I bet it would
1: be in the millions. Yeah. And I think there's probably also been more and more just general articles being published in different places that also just show that public interest that's growing. And it makes sense, too, because, you know, we're still trying to even figure out how many people have misophonia, but some of the early studies are showing that probably as many as one in five people experience some sort of uncomfortable reaction to some of these sounds. So not to a degree that is impairing, that's probably more like one in 20 people, but it's pretty common. And I even, anytime I talk about misophonia, usually what the conversation is, is I'd say, oh, I'm really interested in misophonia. People say, what's that? and then I'll describe it and by the end almost everybody I've talked to says my sister or my friend or I know somebody with that yeah and I think it's just something that is a lot more common than we realize and it's just there hasn't been a name for it or description of it so nobody's really known that it exists and now that we do know it's starting to be talked about more and more because it's so relevant to so many people
0: yeah you know I think that's that's a really good point. I I have similar but but there's more understanding around it for body focused repetitive behaviors. People are like, "Oh, I mean, what a BFRB is." And they're like, "Oh, no, I I chew my nails all the time and blah." blah, blah. <laughs> you know, and it's like and it, yeah, no, it's distressing sometimes. Oh, I didn't know that was a thing. And it's so common that it's like it, It's kind of ironic. It gets to be so common that it's not expected to be thought of as a thing per se. It's like, oh, yeah, no, that's just like a lot of people do that. That's not a thing. That's just that's normal. Right. And you're like, well, actually, normal things can be things. (laughs) Doesn't mean it's not a struggle. You know, it doesn't mean that it can't bring about distress or be a challenge. But, yeah, it is normal. And what's normal anyway? Like everything that I experience is normal for me. What you experience is normal for you, <laughs> but we're different people, right? So our normals are going to look different. And I brought up earlier, and I, I do have a heart for uh, the autistic community, and I I think sometimes too, whether we're talking about autism, ADHD, sensory processing disorders, maybe a different learning disability that may affect the processing in one way or another, sometimes. Folks may be struggling with something like this, misophonia, and if they have a diagnosis of autism or someone suspects, hey, they're autistic, right? Then we kind of go, oh, that's what we expect from them. They're mm-hmm. autistic. So you're like, oh, Timmy over there, he, ha- he struggles with it. Oh, but he's autistic. Oh, okay. 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 Which in one way allows this sense of, okay, I won't get so flipped up about that. That's what we expect for Timmy. But then for Timmy, it's like, no, we don't want that. Like, for you, this isn't about, this isn't the same thing as autism. This isn't the same thing. Like, sometimes any struggle that folks have, if they have a diagnosis already, like autism, people are like, oh, well, that's what we expect. So that's just part of your thing you're going to struggle. Instead of being like, hey, you're drowning over there, let me lend you a hand so that you're not drowning over there. They're like, well, we kind of expect that. It's probably a little bit of a cynical response. Not everybody's that way, a caveat. but But that can happen. And so, what would you say for maybe our neurodivergent population that already has some sensitivity to sound? Sometimes it can even be hard to distinguish based on their support needs. Like, is this something more than just having like a sensory aversion, or is there more to it? And again, because we're still learning so much, it may be hard to piece those pieces out. But what would you say? For our autistic listeners or autistic fam, going is this? Oh, I assumed I should just, you know, learn to accept this is how miserable I'm going to feel because I, apparently I'm autistic and that's what that means. That's not what that means. So what what can we say for our neurodivergent folks and what we're learning thus far? If we have any
1: thoughts on that, and I think what you said, I mean, you definitely you can have autism and other co-occurring conditions. It doesn't just mm-hmm. mitigate all of these other stuff. So I think knowing that, yes, you can have autism, and you can also have misophonia and those can co-occur together. It's not one or the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been some studies trying to look at just the prevalence rates that definitely has found that within autism, there is a co-occurrence of misophonia to some degree. Then any kind of state can battle how do I distinguish just some of those general sensory sensitivities or so sensory processing piece from misophonia and which is what? And that's when you go back to that definition of misophonia and it's these very specific triggering sounds It's not just generally loud noises or textures or certain kind of sensory sensitivities across the board. It's this very specific kind of elements to it. Yeah. Also, I think it can be really helpful too to think about the timeline of when things have shown up. Mm-hmm. So when you're trying to grow, you know, with autism and sort of reprocessing, oftentimes that's, that shows up from the very beginning. Whereas the symphonia most commonly develops around adolescence. And so, if you it's know, it's kind of that change later on. That's a really great kind of sign that maybe this is mesophonia we're working with. it's it starting develops later on.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Again, though, you know, Everything is messy and everything is together and sometimes it's going to be hard to tease apart and maybe you don't even necessarily need to. And that's when you go back to that question of just how is this functioning and how can we help support them with whatever experiences they're having?
0: Yeah, no, those are really, really great points. So in terms of then where research is focusing right now, we've got approaching, we've got the preloading, we've got understanding that CBT can be helpful. But what's really being tested right now that you know of? I know you're involved with a lot of that research. And more broadly, I'm kind of just curious, like what brought, this is a whole nother subject, but what brought you into misophonia too? That would be interesting. But first I'll ask about the state of the research and then would love to hear how you got into this anyway, because it is such a need and not a lot of people have risen to that based on just the mere number of studies being run or have been completed and published. So
1: what is being tested and looked at right now? Yeah, and so so right now, and I think most of the research that's being done, or at least the funded research, there's a lot that's happening through the Misophonia Research Fund. If you Google it, there's a whole really great website with a lot of information about misophonia, but also all the studies that they funded. Every year, they fund a handful of studies to look at some of these questions. Right now, there have been some studies looking at more kind of CBT, more unified protocol approaches to misophonia. So looking just how do we respond to emotions and treatments diagnostically. There's right now a study looking at acceptance and commitment therapy Mm -hmm. as a way to treat misophonia. There's been a little bit of work on. DBT, so dialectical behavior therapy approaches. But again, most of what's been done has been more case studies. So just here's what's worked with this one patient that I've had that's um, a big part of the literature. Mm -hmm. And when we look at exposure, unified protocol, CBT, things like that, there's a lot of varying kind of ways of approaching within that and varying levels of success. One of the studies, it was really interesting, that unified protocol study that I just mentioned, one of the really interesting and unexpected outcomes was that the control condition ended up being basically as effective as the main condition, and so the control condition was more of that progressive muscle relaxation approach. Mm-hmm. So more of that relaxation piece to it, which when you look within OCD exposure, is above and beyond that. But misophonia it actually seemed to be really effective. And that's also just anecdotally working with patients a lot of times. That muscle relaxation component does seem to be very helpful. So that was one of the kind of unexpected findings right? what's helpful.
0: I wonder if part of it is placebo effective, like I'm going to get something and I haven't had anything for it. Not to say that muscle relaxation isn't carrying any of the weight there, but I wonder if part of the reason why they both had whatever degree of success was because people felt like some hope around that. Because again, when we talk about that mindset, just going in where you go, like, but what's the power of a mindset? Even sometimes people will say it blows, like, oh no, that's probably just placebo effect. Hey, I don't care if it's placebo effect, if that's helping. It's changing our mindset is helping. We want anything that helps. Now, is that the key to what happened here? Or was that a fluke? We need to test that because we got more details and know like why this worked. But like mindset, again, makes the mind is powerful and it can make a huge difference. And so I wonder if part of that is too like, it would be interesting to see if a lot of control groups are, are performing around as more studies get done, if they're performing as much as like the treatment protocol that we're, we're testing, it would just be interesting to see. If not, then that's no, no, That that's an interesting theory, but not showing in the evidence.
1: When I think that's, I mean, that's why these uh, randomized clinical trials are so important to fast before we draw any conclusions because that mindset, that placebo effect, we know that shows up. And so then the question is, Does this treatment perform above and beyond just the whatever happens when people are doing something? And so that's why it's important to, yes, show that this treatment performs better than no treatment or performs better than a weightless control, but then also to build on it, does it perform better than this other treatment Mm -hmm. or you know control treatment, which does a little bit because people are doing something, but maybe isn't to the extent of the skills that we think are really effective.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what I'm hearing then and what the fam can kind of draw from this is ACT, that's acceptance and commitment therapy. And really that value-driven, like if we're approaching a situation more in a value-driven mindset, can go along beautifully with that. Also, relaxation can be a, a big piece facilitated through ACT. And with that, you get a muscle relaxation. You can have lots of different factors. So those things are being explored in the current research. Is there anything else that you've heard of coming down the
1: pipeline? So the ACT study, that's ongoing. We don't actually have any other is built yet. Okay. Um, it's something that makes a lot of sense. Some of those case studies seem like they're really helpful. I think when we think too, it seems like emotion regulation play a role or is connected in some way to misophonia and misophonia experience. That's where maybe that DBT approach, some of those elements can be really helpful. So working on that distress tolerance component, working on that emotion regulation piece, DBT can be very helpful for anger and some of these other emotions too. So I think that's something that has a little bit been looked at hopefully will be looked at a little bit more and again just some of those CBTs skills some of that attention shifting skills some we're just really kind of trying to figure out which skills are most useful mm-hmm. but we know quite that there are skills that are useful we just have to study them a little bit more
0: yeah and tap into them yeah, it it does make sense too because within like DBT, if you get flooded by frustration in a moment, can get kind of absorbed all all up in that. DBT is very good at helping shift that mindset and be able to practice there's so many different DBT skills and so that that does Yeah, that makes sense too on how that feels like that could be a fit. It's worth looking into that. Now, again, family listening, if you're hearing this and going, okay, so we need to find somebody that does DBT. I mean, again, like you're saying, Rebecca, it's a good idea to sync up with any cognitive behavioral therapist, really, even in terms of that. It's not that DBT is going to be the magic fix. There's... Pluses and minuses. We know why it works for certain presentations, but what can we do to kind of lean in? And it might take some trial and error, and it might take some practice to see. Yeah, this this skill worked for me. That's great. No, the skill. It really didn't work for me in that moment, and be able to practice using some of those tools and and finding out what feels like it's a, a better fit for you. And so sometimes. The skill is gonna fall flat, right? It's gonna happen. Mm-hmm, yeah, but that happens in life anyway, right? Like sometimes we're gonna try something, and we're gonna be like, "Well, that didn't work." <laughs> that's life for you. Like not everything's gonna work. This is part of how we learn. So there is research not. going on there.
1: Yeah, well, I was just gonna say that's why usually you know you want to find a a provider too who's willing to partner with you on this. I always when I work with patients, I say upfront. We don't know a ton. We know some. We're figuring it out. And you and I together are going to be figuring this out. or a team approach. Yeah. I think that can then open it up to, let's just try it out. Let's see. We're not going to get too caught up and, you know, too disappointed. if This isn't helpful or that, is that, And we're just going to figure out what works for you.
0: Yeah. Speaking of the team approach, too, then I was just thinking, too, do we have any... Information thus far in the research on are SSRIs going to be more helpful or have any effect? We certainly know in other areas where SSRIs can be very, very helpful, particularly when we're thinking of like OCD. And so, have we seen any outcomes around medication and these reported
1: conditions in misophonia? That's a great question. I don't know, but my guess would be we don't know. I would say, you know, maybe if you think about if there are co occurring conditions going on. So if there is that anxiety or OCD or depression or anything else showing up, treating that can, like what we were talking about with that vulnerability factor, maybe get you into a better state where you're more able to approach things. So mesophonia would, you know, improve as a byproduct of that, but I don't. Now that we know SSRI specifically for misophonia,
0: yeah, I so I think what we could say there too, if we wanna, <laughs> if we wanna package it this way, is it sounds like there's not something specifically drawn to it, but just like we can preload and prime ourselves to be at our best if we're dealing with other co-occurring symptomology that could benefit from the SSRI or medication support or whatever you and your doctor. Might discuss. We're not your doctor. Rebecca's a doctor, but she's not a medical doctor. She's a PhD doing this great research. And so talk to your medical doctor. But yes, priming yourself up in every sort of way, whether it's sensory wise, whether it's from a physical or mental health standpoint, is going to help put you in the best position. And it sounds like then there's more research to be done specifically on how that would interact with misophonia. Yes. I am curious, because there is so little research about it, what brought you into the field of studying misophonia?
1: Well, that's a good question. And I think it's actually a really interesting story in a way where my first professional experience with misophonia was I was taking a Psychopathology class as part of graduate school. So it was one of my very first classes and one of my very first years of graduate school. Mm I had a class assignment to write a letter to the editor, which is basically an opinion piece on a topic that's well known or is controversial or just something where you can just briefly write a letter about some topic. And so I had known about misophonia a little bit, but I chose that as my topic mm-hmm. for the the editor and then as part of the fast we were also encouraged to actually submit it and i submitted it it was accepted and that was sort of my first publication around misophonia and it's really oh. funny i know and know my advisor actually i was talking with her, dr joanna arch and she was she's made a comment on which this is the most widely cited letter to the editor that i've ever seen like normally this is sort of a throwaway you know it's like Important article, but not something that gets a lot of traction. But because there was so little about misophonia at the time, this was back in 2015. It was like one of the few things that was actually able to be cited. Wow, that's a cool. In the jury, and then from there, not too long after that, somebody contacted our university clinic. Wasn't Besophonian. And so, of course, speed me up. I would love to treat this. And because there's so little out there about how to actually approach it, I decided I wanted to be very methodical about it and do a lot of assessment and write it up as a case study, depending on how everything went. And so, got permission from the client ahead of time, and we really carefully tracked what we did each session. I had them fill out questionnaires every single week. And his symptoms improved a lot over, it was only 10 weeks that we met for because he was going off to college pretty soon after that. And, and it was really cool to see that change. And that just reinforced everything that I had written in, in that letter to the editor about here's what I think could be really useful based on what misophonia is. And kind of there, I just launched my interest in misophonia. Yeah.
0: You know what? I love that that's such a cool story. So what's funny is like my my whole like understanding for 20 years of my career for OCD was a slide in a psychopathology class. And it's so funny to think sometimes you're going to have these conversations, you're going to do these projects, is this going to really go anywhere? But you made this point earlier. And it really, I think is illuminated by that story of like, it's important having these conversations. Sometimes we were like, the conversation isn't going to change anything. How many times have we heard that? Like, have you, have you talked about it's not going to change anything, right? And it's like, well, well, you never know. Like, you went in and did a class project about something you heard of enough but realized oh, there's not a lot, and you ended up writing something that has gotten the ball rolling. How many of those 187 studies would exist had that letter to the editor not come about. Like, that's pretty amazing, Rebecca. That is amazing. Yeah, well, thank you, because that is the power of conversation. So when we go, like, I'm one person, what can I do? You can do a lot. You can do a lot. And if you're suffering, if you're that one person suffering with misophonia or watching your loved one be just wrecked by the distress around their experience of misophonia one person can do a lot there is there's a lot of hope out there it is just getting movement but it's getting movement right and so there is an ethical responsibility for us as practitioners for researchers to go hey the reason we're doing this thing is gonna help and not hurt right it's for the benefit of the client And so even when we're in the midst of having different research trials go on, I know that there's so much eagerness to hear, like, what's going on? Is that going to help? And, you know, we can't say something's going to help if we don't know it's going to help. And just because maybe it passes one study doesn't mean that's a reliable outcome. Like, we don't want to send you on a rabbit trail for something that's not going to be helpful. But. We are finding here are some of the observations and, and setting yourself up, having a team, knowing you're not alone, trying some of these different muscle relaxations, priming yourself to feel your best in your body from a sensory, mental health, physical health, spiritual health, all the things, right? Perspective, like it's going to help set up for success. And we know a lot of that emerging for misophonia because of you. So thank you. That
1: is amazing. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really, it's it's very rare to be in a position where there's this whole huge field that is just starting out because everything else we've been talking about for so long, so many years, there's so much we know and there's so much still to know, but there's this huge base to it. Whereas with Mesopotamia, we're at the very beginning. So we get to start in this place where Opinion pieces matter and then case studies matter and then open trials are going to matter. And then we're going to get more clinical trials and you, know, you can kind of see it growing. Yeah. And there's so much more growth to happen, but you can kind of see this building blocks that how do you go from here's this thing that we think exists to here's something that exists, here's the details of it, and here's what we think is most helpful to treat it.
0: Yeah. Well, and the. The blessing and the curse that comes with opinion pieces and social media's reach and whatnot, like people can know they're not alone. They can feel like, oh, my gosh, I do that, too. And, and they can watch different influencers. They can start a ripple effect with sharing their experience that, like yourself, with completing a class project that has led to one of the most widely cited uh, letters to the editor, which is amazing we can also get misinformation out there. And so part of the importance then is also thinking about where are my sources coming from? There have been a lot of powerful, good things that have come out of people with social media influencers and and communities within a myriad of different mental health or chronic illness realms. But at the same point, we get a lot of misinformation too that can spread like wildfire. And so What advice would you have for family as they're going out and seeking this information to put on their critical thinking cap of like, yes, this is okay, this worked for them, but also that's also that worked for them. And who knows what else is going on for them. And that doesn't necessarily make it gospel truth because it happened once for them. So what advice would you give folks when they're trying to get information and so eager to take it in that they're taking in information
1: that is going to do more help than harm i think putting on that critical thinking path is helpful and then approaching everything knowing that we don't know much and so everything out there right now is this worked for a, a couple of people here or there or here's a suggestion and that doesn't necessarily mean. This is the way we're going to do it. And everything I'm even saying today is this is what we know in this moment, but things are changing. yeah. And so we're going to keep learning and growing and changing more as we know more. I think anything that has more of that peer-reviewed quality to it. So if you're looking at studies, for example, studies that have been peer-reviewed are in reputable journals, have been published in this way, can be very helpful. Mm-hmm. Looking at the misopholes. Research fund and seeing what are the studies and the, the researchers who are doing the studies that are funded right now, mm-hmm. and then going to their website, doing your rabbit hole based on that can be a helpful approach as opposed to starting mm-hmm. in that social media world and going from that direction. Mm-hmm. I think, too, you know, it's interesting. There's a really active misophonia community online, a lot of people who have just been struggling and trying to find each other and find a voice. And that does always reflect what the research community has been working on it
0: doesn't it. <laughs> yeah no you're right <laughs> you're right no shade yeah yeah no it's it's funny yeah. because i i've i've like i have celiac disease so i'm a part of a celiac support group and some of the stuff and it's not a medically managed disease it's strictly strictly to the nth degree with cross-contamination don't eat gluten And so doctors, there's not a lot of medical crap. And some of the things people come out with in these groups sometimes can be like, wow, I've never thought of that. That's helpful. And usually it just feels like this heavy negativity of like, no, because somebody's like, this worked for me. And they're like, that's BS. And then you're like, that's BS. And it's just, it it ends up having this feel. But it can be really helpful. It can be supportive. Often it's going to be, anecdotal to people's experiences, which makes sense. They all, all, all they have is their own experience and looking for support, right? And trying to, if something helped for them, maybe it'll help for you. But if it's not matching the research, like you're saying, it's not that it couldn't potentially be helpful, but it's not a guarantee. It's not a fix. And it might make things worse for you even because we're different people. That's why the research is important. So that we know, not that research is infallible and and that it's a cure, but that we know when we're doing this, it's because it's moving us towards this needle that's moving us towards this goal rather than, oh, well, I actually just use this natural cream and all the natural people are going to come after me, but (laughs) they're like, it works. But I use that and somehow that helped with my hearing and it changed my brain chemistry. And you're like, did it? All right.
1: Yeah. So just knowing that like it's great that there is this active community and I think really important because Misophonia for so long nobody has acknowledged its existence or has gone up on this one path that may or may not reflect Musophonia's sufferers as experience. And also, you're right, kind of what one person or a few people experience isn't necessarily what your experience is and what worked or didn't work for them isn't necessarily what will for you. Or even when you think about exposure, for example, that's something that I think you know historically in the research side, we've done a lot of, you know, initial work trying that out. Whereas in the community side, there's a lot of this isn't helpful. This makes things worse. Right. Um, and I mean, where we land is somewhere in the middle where actually exposure from that approach, inhibitory learning, acceptance, but whatever there's a certain form of exposure that it probably is helpful. But then there's a search and form that maybe is not so helpful. And then if you just keep trying to suffer through something, it is going to make it worse. So
0: Right. I actually had the this new client call me back because I was like, mm, this sounds like OCD. And she was panicked. She had found like, but ERP is going to make it worse. And I was like, well, I, I practice ERP and ICBT. I don't know if you're uh, familiar with ICBT. But I know that ERP doesn't work for dysphonia, and I know that this is being strongly identified, and we have some further options to explore, which is why it's nice to have options. Have you you practiced or learned much about ICBT? I know it's kind of this emerging conversation here in the
1: States. I've heard the conversations and kind of learned a little bit about it. I haven't dug any deeper than that yet, although I've started to be even more interested just thinking about all clients I have who I think be interesting to try it out with them but yes yeah, so I'm sort of in that state of I've been following all the dialogues without diving
0: <laughs> the dialogues are spicy too by the way
1: yes, <laughs> yes. Well, it's next
0: A lot of excitement. That was such a positive reframe, Rebecca, and I love it. I'm here. If you have any interest in hearing more about it, I could I could sync you up with some of the people that have a good working understanding of it. Not not no pressure or anything. It's been helpful for me because when I was observing the conversations, I was much more skeptical. And then as I learned it and it clicked, I was like, And I can't exactly tell why it clicked yet because it was so confusing and so different. But I was like, wow. And it's nice to have another option. So if you're interested, I can put you in contact. But if you're like, you know what? I'm a little busy. busy. That's fine, too. No pressure. Oh,
1: yeah, that would be great. I'm always open to learning more kind of ways of approaching. Okay. Yeah. And I've always I mean, my whole background is in really an acceptance and commitment therapy so all of my erp work has always been done from this act lens yeah too i i can't really tease the two apart at all i just approach act-based exposure basically so yeah Um, yeah
0: yeah it's interesting i will do an introduction for you all right one last question do you have a measure or anything that you have been in the works of developing i found the Duke. I see. Yeah, the DMQ. But I don't know if there is something that you would recommend in terms of, I know there's still so little research, and this is a self-report, but as a way to get some baseline collected data, I'm sure we'll see as the research improves, like we'll have more ideas and more psychometric testing that'll be able to inform more for us. But do you have anything that you would recommend for clinicians? hearing about misophonia concerns and wanting to have some way to track what's going on.
1: Yeah, and this, I mean, again, this is one of the areas that we're really limited in. There's no good measure or way of assessing misophonia, which has been one of the problems so far with the research. And it's also one of the areas that I think there is starting to be more and more research done to develop measures that are more psychometrically sound. The ones that I use, so we collect data on misophonia within our IOP program and we use the Amsterdam Misophonia Scale, okay. which it was designed, it, it sort of mimics the Y-box and structure so they it can be more of a clinician administered form or, or else more of a self-report version. And then I use also the Misophonia Questionnaire, which was developed by researchers in Florida. Mm-hmm. on there's a couple of other ones out there too but
0: they're not really vetted much beyond that yeah do you know are they publicly available publicly okay well i will look into that okay so that's good to know the amsterdam misophonia scale and then the misophonia questionnaire out of florida And, you know, so the thing about mental health and our brains and all of that and these chronic illnesses that have multivariant factors, environmental factors, biological factors, is they're not prejudicial. They hit and affect everyone. And sometimes what that means is they hit somebody with very limited resources and sometimes it hits somebody with endless resources. Right. And it doesn't feel fair. But what I will say is and I've seen this. In other areas of the community, I know that on the Pans and Pandas panel, one of the people got involved because their kid was struggling with it. And then they were like, there is not enough going on for this. And then they started a foundation. They did an organization. And so it sounds like the Misophonia Research Fund is a great place to learn about what's going on. But also, if you're personally impacted by this and you have that philanthropic heart to want to be able to give back to this community, being able to help fund some grants and get involved with the research and at least provide a forum for conversations or fundraising to occur, donating something that might bring in more funds for research. You could have a walk, I hear, it I could be 50 miles. Oh, goodness. But, but there are a lot of different ways to get involved, and this does happen. There are people that get personally impacted by one thing or another, and they say, I'm going to make a contribution, whether it's financial or my time, providing a meeting space. And those things really do make a difference. So, yes, the NIH is a great place to be able to submit for grants and to to get research funded. But there's also a lot of work happening in these nonprofit organizations and just even private funders that are going, hey, somebody I love deals with this and I want to see a difference. So I'm going to make a difference, even if it's throwing five dollars towards it. Right. And so you never know, again, the power of a person. Rebecca is is our case in point. So there is hope available. And if you are in a situation where you have the resources available to contribute to that, too, I mean, you can be a part of this chasm as we are really at the beginning, like you said, of learning about this. And with so much road ahead of us, there's a lot of possibilities, right?
1: Yes. Yeah. And that's really what we need is more funded research so that we can learn as much as possible, as quickly as possible about this.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Rebecca, this has been so helpful. And I really thank you for not only your time today, but for the thoughtfulness you put into even a graduate program project way back when that has had this this impact and just really thank you for sharing with us the ideas the findings of what we have thus far and some ideas on how we can propel this movement forward for the benefit of our loved ones for our family here that are suffering with misophonia so thank you so much for taking the time to join us today thank
1: you for having me and thank you again for having this really important conversation
0: Absolutely. Anytime, Rebecca, feel free to come back and we can chat. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you for that. What a great, great chat, Rebecca. Doc. Thank you for sharing your time and your expertise, especially around the holidays for us here in the States to help build better understanding and hope for what the future holds. And you know what, fam? I have to say, Rebecca and I, we, we pre-recorded this chat because the holidays, kids, hashtag real life. But I've really been thinking a lot about what Rebecca described as this non-exposure-based approach to misophonia. In fact, she herself compared this to disgust-based OCD themes. And while these are separate and different, I have to note that it really took me to a great talk that I attended in this year's International OCD Foundation Online Conference where Richard Gallagher, Chris Johnson, and Bronwyn Schroyer discussed disgust-based themes using a mastery approach in inference-based CVT. And I have to say, it was such a compelling chat that I contacted Rich right away. Chris and Bronwyn have been on the podcast, and I said to Rich, please, we have to talk about this more with the BAM here. And we will. Rich kindly took me up on this, and we will be discussing the mastery approach in further depth as well as disgust OCD in the new year. But I was so struck by the similarities to the presentation of misophonia and disgust-based OCD. So again, those separate animals, I think the mastery approach and ICBT could be really a, a compelling area of research for the misophonia community. So while we did touch a bit on ICBT toward the conclusion of our time together, it just got me really excited and hopeful for what the future holds. And like Rebecca noted, this really is an opportunity to be present at the start of a movement, of a growing understanding, and a trajectory of treatment that can bring hope and recovery for decades to come. So for today's intrusive thought segment, which is the application segment of my show, I want to challenge the fan with this. So much has happened so far, from Rebecca completing an assignment. Or like last week, Diana Boarding an airplane and saying, There's got to be more for my kid. The simplest act of having a conversation, saying out loud, even when we don't know what to think about this, is saying something, raising awareness, exploring understanding. This could look like saying to a family member or friend, Hey, have you heard of misophonia? Or even liking or sharing a post like the audiogram about Rebecca and I's chat here together today. Maybe it's even leaving a review for the podcast so it populates and it's recommended for more folks potentially suffering, potentially learning, and potentially inspiring new waves of research with their own letter to the editor, with their own case studies, with their own grant or their own funding. For some of us, we may never see the ripple effect of what our words and our conversation have on the greater good, but for at least one person, that can also lead to being the most cited letter to the editor ever. Because you had the courage to say, hey, this thing here, there's not enough information about this. I mean, when I asked Rebecca the question about how she became involved in Misophonia, since it is such a small research field, an emerging topic of conversation, I had no idea that that was her story. And I kept thinking, oh my goodness, I am so glad I asked this. What if I hadn't asked? I mean, It's so powerful. The power of one person engaging in a conversation, it matters. Our loved ones and our family suffering with misophonia, they matter. The OCD family and broader mental health community, we matter. We're better together, fam. So this week, the challenge for you is to strike up a conversation. Not sure how to explain it? Share this episode. Or the write-up in Harvard Health. Again, I got you over at OCDFamilyPodcast.com. Or read the Good Docs letter to the editor and other contributions to this important research. Go on PubMed or Google Scholar and share about what you've learned or heard in conversation, maybe even this conversation. Sometimes all it takes is one person. Often, when talking about hard things or frustrating things, systematic problems, we might find ourselves saying, but I'm one person. What's the power of one person, one voice? What am I going to be able to do with this? Well, as it turns out, the power of one voice can do quite a lot. So thank you, Dr. Schneider. Thank you for sharing your voice. In so many ways, it's paved a way forward. So let's move forward, fam, because we're better together. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit OCDFamilyPodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on The Family Chatter. Oh yeah family, like sharing about, figuring misophonia out. That's right,
1: I went there, and you can too, at OCDFamilyPodcast.com.